Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Budapest, May 1954. Six months after a humiliating 6-3 defeat in a friendly with Olympic champions Hungary, England travelled to the Hungarians convinced the humbling dub the match of the century was a one-off travesty. Hungary, by then unbeaten in 26 matches and sporting a new lighter strip with a V-neck design that made England positively look like Victorians in their starched buttoned-up shirts and baggy shorts, took the game's inventors apart, 7-1 this time, confirming the Wembley result was no fluke and cementing their status as hot favourites for that summer's World Cup in Switzerland. It could be argued that despite the 66 World Cup triumph, English football never fully absorbed the tactical lessons dished out by the Hungarians. But by 1954, something in English football was about to change. The shorts were about to get shorter. Umbro, emulating the style of the Hungarian kit, designed a new strip for the vanquished England featuring v-necks instead of collars and much shorter cotton shorts, as was the fashion on the continent. Billy Wright and Al Sherwood meet in pouring rain before the start of the England-Wales duel at Wembley. Here at England debut in what came to be known as the new continental kits at home to Wales in November 1954. And that's where I come in. I'm writer, broadcaster Daniel Ruiz-Tyson, and with this show, I'm not for one minute claiming old football was better. It wasn't. The pitches were dreadful, games were often brutal, the stadiums were decrepit, but we all loved the football we grew up with, and I think that half the time, I'd still rather watch an edition of the big match revisited rather than another Super Sunday clash between teams I can watch any night of the week. When shorts were short, only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. Here's a bemused Bob Wilson on the BBC's coverage of the 91 Cup final, remarking on the return of baggy shorts. More space. Yeah. They've, bought, they've as, followed as uh, Stan Matthews shorts, Tottenham, haven't they? <laughs> uh, 1930, 40 shorts here. I mean, it's it's, it's crazy, isn't it, how fashion's come back? But look at those shorts nowadays. So if the shorts weren't short, we just don't talk about it. Though here's the qualifier. As the old football league was losing 22 of its clubs to the new Premier League, 
back in those days, teams weren't changing their strips every season, and often away kits were kept for a couple of seasons or longer. So, by 92, there were instances of clubs with new home strips sporting the throwback baggy shorts, while at the same time having away kits with the short shorts, and this would continue to be the case until 1995. In instances such as these, where the personalities involved were continuing to turn out for clubs or managed teams where these shorts were still short we will continue looking back on their career beyond 92 and that is indeed the case with this first episode's guest and before i come to them an important announcement regarding this show this isn't quite the podcast i envisaged launching which may strike you as an astonishing admission from a creator but i do feel the need to make everyone aware of this because you may not be familiar with my work and that is not a reflection on this show's guest today because this is a former player i've long wanted to interview or any guests that appear on these early episodes i'm trying to say simply that the shows as a whole the style i was after isn't possible to implement at this stage because of what I'm about to tell you. The podcast has been six months in the planning. There was lots of back and forth with potential guests, lots of nailing down interview dates, dealing with publishers to interview authors and the subject of their books, and unusual features looking back at the 40-year window covered by this show. But in the background, somewhat incredibly, given we're in a pandemic, I was caught up in a five-month battle with the housing management team who, in inverted commas, look after my building. In being the only tenant to resist the internal works planned in each flat, I suppose I made things more difficult for myself. Had I gone ahead with the work when it was originally scheduled, the work would have been completed a couple of months ago and this show would have met its November launch date. But I felt the work was unsafe. I spoke to a number of different people about this, all agreed. And it's unusual for everyone to agree with me on anything. Unfortunately for me, unfortunately for the show, I lost my battle and the work finally went ahead, finishing just last week. It was as unsafe as I feared. It has seriously impacted on the show's original launch date. I'd done a massive upgrade of recording equipment, which all had to be boxed up again just weeks after being unboxed for the first time. It's been difficult to say the least. Now, as an early generation podcaster, I've got over 800 shows behind me. I know what it takes to produce a podcast. I know how to build an audience. Well, I know what works for normal shows, but alas, my own regular show specializes in having a tiny audience. I hope that's not the case for this new show. But the point is, for over a decade, I've operated like a big show. I've shown my audience respect. Weekly releases on the same date, often twice weekly. I've always been of the opinion that a show needs to let its audience know when it's out. And that needs to be the same day every week. As a listener of tens of thousands of shows since podcasting burst onto the scene in the mid-noughties, personally, I don't care how good a show is. I don't care who's fronting it. If it starts messing its audience around... If its release dates are irregular, I stop listening. So getting this new show out now in this way, when it's a long way off being the type of show I envisaged, goes against all my podcast beliefs. But this has been a terrible year for all of us on a personal level. I'll be damned if I'm going to let outrageous building work in my flat destroy all my hard work of the last six months. And so for me, it's important I get this out before Christmas, a Christmas miracle of sorts. And my aim is to bring out the first 
couple of shows by Christmas Eve and in the new year slowly get the show match fit. If I don't do it this way, the setbacks of the last few months have been so significant that I don't think I'll get this off the ground. So I'm saying to you, a potential listener, I know the importance of releasing shows on time and on the same day each week. But this Christmas, I'm going against 11 years and 800 shows of experience and I'm finally getting when shorts were short out. I hope you enjoy it. The guest on this opening episode was a prodigious talent who burst on the scene in 1979 with Charlton Athletic weeks before his 17th birthday. At a time when both Match of the Day and ITV's football output in its regional variations regularly showed lower league football, this hugely gifted teenager was no secret. When Paul Walsh moved to newly promoted Luton Town for £400,000 in the summer of 1982, the only surprise was that he hadn't gone to a bigger club. Two years later, having comfortably established himself in the top flight and an England international, albeit one who was about to become a former international at the ridiculously young age of 21, Walsh moved to Liverpool where he faced the onerous task of breaking up one of English football's finest ever partnerships, Dalgleish and Rush. But the at-time spiky South Londoner wasn't phased by the challenge and at that time, in the spring of 84, the fact is he would have been one of only a handful of players in the English game one would have considered capable of replacing Liverpool's greatest number seven. By 85-86, despite a difficult relationship with his now Liverpool boss, Kenny Dalglish, Walsh hit the best form of his career and a run of 18 goals in 25 games put a Liverpool side arguably in transition that season in contention for a title that for much of the season had looked like a straightforward battle between Everton and United. An injury in the spring of 86 slowed down Walsh's progress, and as he himself admits in his candid autobiography, he'd never reached that level again. But the fact is that without his contribution in 85-86, that Liverpool side don't win the double, at least not the league half of that. Despite his season ending early, Walsh was named in the PFA Team of the Year that season, his place in that 11 fully deserved. By the summer of 87, with Dalgleish revamping Liverpool in the wake of Ian Rush's departure to Juventus, Walsh found himself watching from the sidelines as that Barnes-Beardsley-Aldridge team stormed to the title and by the spring of 88 made an ill-fated move to Spurs. In an interview every bit as honest as his book, Walsh admits that the four years at Tottenham were his last years. But then in 1992, an unexpected and originally unwanted move saw him recover the form of his earlier years, first at Portsmouth and then at Manchester City, where he formed a brilliant partnership with fellow new boy Uwe Rosler. These days, lavishly gifted forwards aren't an unusual sight in English football. But 40 years ago, when Walsh was making his first appearances for Charlton, his singular talent marked him out as one to watch. And despite some difficult years, Walsh graced English football across three decades, and that 79-86 to 86 version would have gone for tens of millions in today's bloated transfer market. Defenders back then were big and strong and in what was then a full-on contact sport could win that ball in many different ways without being carded and being able to play out from the back wasn't really a thing and that was the hard and muddy world the young Paul Walsh was stepping into. Defenders then were big, 
no nonsense, edit, kick it, and wouldn't have liked people like me, you know, uh, wriggling around low centre of gravity, a little bit more technical. And it's interesting what you say, because Fabio Capello, who I've never met, wrote something really nice about me in his book, about how when I was at Luton, how I was a totally un-English football player, even though the journalist was quite disparaging about me, because he's looking at it years later. I still don't know why he feels how he feels. That's up to him, because at that time I was playing for England and I was going to Liverpool. So obviously people were, were interested in me at that time. And that's when Capello's making the comments. You know, I was slightly different. You know, I was, I was trying to make myself more in the technical mould, Kenny Dalglish, back to goal striker. You know, my early days in international football and youth football were under John Cartwright, and he encouraged all that back to goal. Me and Terry Gibson, two midgets, really, played up front for England. Uh, that was in Yugoslavia, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And I made my debut against Germany, and I got man of the match. And me and Gibbo were five foot six between us, you know. He's about, he's about five six, and I was five seven and a bit. Which is just extraordinary that that happened, that you two were paired up for a game in those times, as you say, where physicality was prized. Well, you say physicality. Terry was a very powerful young... Okay, Yeah, he was quite well built, wasn't he? Yeah, and he was quick. I mean, rapid. I wasn't nowhere near as quick as Terry, but as a combination, he wasn't as good as me into his feet, though. You know, you had to put in front of Terry and he'd beat anyone in a race. You know, I could twist and turn and beat people and, and then maybe look to slide him in or... Yeah, that was my debut and it was, it was absolutely incredible. You know, it all happened so quickly as well. I was writing on Twitter yesterday about how I nearly got rejected at 14 for not being big enough. You know, the club made a decision to give me a little bit longer. And, you know, those two years between 14 and 16 were massive because they allowed me just to work on my physical, phys- you know, because I was very slight and small. Back then, football, you know, it's like I remember watching England schoolboys at Wembley and I hated it. Hated the fact that I wasn't there. You know, I went to trials at Loughborough University and at the end of the week we got put in, in 1977 it was, we got put in A, B, C, D, E and F team and I'm in the E team, nowhere to be seen. And I remember having to watch that game on TV, England, Scotland. Terry Gibson played. There was a young kid called Jimmy Bolton who was also at Tottenham, who was powerful. There was a big centre-half, Tommy Caton, who played twice yeah. in England schoolboys because he was so big. It was all about size. And yet, out of that squad, of those 100 kids at Loughborough, I by far and away had the best career because we were short-sighted in terms of technical ability and it was all about a teacher who ran England schoolboys trying to win and to win, basically, rather than develop, which didn't suit me. It just got my back up massively and just made me uh, dig deeper to make sure I proved everyone wrong. The thing is, throughout your book, the early part of the book when you're growing up and you're having these setbacks within the local teams and uh, school teams, area teams, you're a kid, but you're already aware of that. You're going into the professional game already thinking, this is the kind of thinking I'm up against. The conflict you have at schoolboy football is that the teacher running the team, he takes it personally as though the result reflects on him. So he wanted to pick the biggest physical team. And those types of managers couldn't see that I could contribute purely because they couldn't see past my size. Whereas at Charlton, I think they could, but they just weren't sure. So they gave me a bit more time. It was a good decision on their part because yeah. me and, and then Paul Elliott, you know, we, we became, uh, you know, the two players that came through that squad. I was a bit older than Paul. But, you know, we were the only players that were worth any money to a club that was skinned. I want to, rather than just go through your career in a linear fashion, I want to go to what I think is a really pivotal point in your career. 
It's January 1986, the TV strike is over, Liverpool are playing at Watford, it's one of the first televised games of the season, typically muddy pitch of that era. You score two goals that day, you're on a run of 18 goals in 25 games. At that point in your career, you're very much the player that everyone was fighting to sign. All the big clubs were being linked with that Paul Walsh. And Liverpool, perhaps in transition at that point, are actually in the race for the title. And that was arguably your, well, it was certainly your best spell at Liverpool, but that was, yeah. no one was surprised by that. That's, that's the point I'm making. There's one, one other key moment that you've, you've missed a little bit, but it was, it was as I signed for Liverpool, Joe Fagan asked me to come to the European Cup final in Rome and I really wanted to go. And this is my first really big mistake, my first really bad decision in my life. I don't go to the under-21s. And what really I could kick myself even today is that I played in all the under-21 games. I was a top scorer. You know, I was going to Liverpool, so you can imagine what everyone's thinking about us. I don't go to that game. They win the European Championships and I'm not part of it. I naff Bobby Robson off because I go with Liverpool and not with the under-21s and he drops me out of the full England squad and I don't go to South America. Hence, that gave Mark Haitley an opportunity. He goes to um, South America, scores a back post header against Brazil and gets transferred to AC Milan from Portsmouth, who were at the bottom end of the, the, the second division back then. That, that was my first really big mistake. Now, when you come to that moment in that Watford game, the papers are clamouring for me to be put back in the in the England team. The one thing I couldn't change was the injury I got in March against Man United at Anfield and I ruptured my ankle ligaments, although the club didn't know that because the medical was quite poor at Liverpool. I was devastated, absolutely devastated. And I went on to have six, seven months of poor treatment in terms of injury. Even if Bobby Robson had wanted to take me to, to Mexico, I could have possibly got fit with the right treatment in time. But the treatment I got was just woeful. And so I had no chance. And that was almost from the beginning, from when you joined Liverpool, you had two or three injuries that were misdiagnosed. And you make the point in your book that there was a physio at Luton, and I think there were two physios at Charlton. So you seem to have a very clear idea whenever you had an injury of how something should be treated. The treatment room at Liverpool was like a museum. You know, the stuff never worked. Ronnie Moran gave the treatment out in the treatment room without a single qualification. And Roy Evans ran on the pitch because he was quicker than Ronnie Moran and younger. That was how they worked it out. I'm serious. Half the equipment didn't work. I was having ultrasound on my ankle for four months. The guy come in to test the equipment. It weren't even working. You know, so it was embarrassing. But the impact that had on me, you know, obviously I didn't get fit. And Liverpool's mantra a little bit was someone else steps in. Now, Kenny stepped into the fray. I think if you went down and done a survey in Liverpool and said, what was the, the 86 double winning team? I wouldn't be in it. Kenny would be in it with Ian Rush because people remember Chelsea, Stamford Bridge, Kenny scoring a winner and the FA Cup final win. But you still make the PFA team of the year, don't you? Yeah. The the fact that Rush wasn't in the team, Dalgleish wasn't in the PFA team, it was me, Lineker and Mark Hughes. I think, you know, I sometimes have to trot that out to people to to make them realise that I was having a good season because it's like a long time ago. People are just not interested. Not not in the main. You know, the fact that Liverpool won the, the double was the main thing. But I was devastated by, A, not, I dreamt of playing in an FA Cup final and now I weren't going to play in an FA Cup final. I dreamt of playing in a World Cup and now I definitely wasn't going to be playing in a World Cup. And before that, after the Hazel tragedy, I'd been playing with a hernia for three months and they didn't have a clue what it was. So I went back in the summer and saw the doctor from Luton. He diagnosed it in two minutes. 
he said, I can sort this operation out for you. So I went and got the operation. And then I fell foul with Liverpool because I went and got my own operation. Yeah. You know, I didn't like the fact that I'd done it off my own back. I didn't trust them to do the right thing. You know, and when he was out of the team at Liverpool, he got treated poorly. There's no great thanks or gratitude in any way from the club for playing with an injury and the treatment you got when you was injured. We're going to go from that point in 86 and we're just going to go back to your start at Charlton before we come back to the start of your Liverpool career and then move on through the rest of your career. You touched on it earlier, September 79, a huge month. You're going to um, Yugoslavia, the Adria Cup, that game with Terry Gibson. You returned stronger from that. You've started filling out, as you touched on earlier. Uh, Late September 79, you make your debut for Charlton. Well, you travel to Shrewsbury first, I think, don't you? And your captain comes off. The the fact I knew that I was in the manager's thoughts was he took me to a game. I'm not sure if it was the season before. So I was still 16, but very, very young. So this is September. But if you go back to April or March, he took me up to Burnley with the squad. And so I hadn't stayed an overnight stay with a club at all and things like that, staying in a hotel, travelling on the bus, you know, at Burnley and Turf Moor. And I remember the game and I didn't get changed. There was only one sub in them days, but, yeah. you know, he was giving me the, the experience. And, and the message to me was, you're in the plans. You you know, you keep working, you're in the plans. My mum and dad were actually on holiday in that September and I, I get named on the bench. And how you found out, the team sheet was printed on the dressing room wall on a Friday. So I was in the squad. So the squad turns up and I'm on the bench. And at half-time, Dick Tideman, I think that was our captain then, I think, he yeah. comes in at half-time and he's limping and rubbing his groin. And suddenly I just filled up with butterflies because I knew I was going on. I couldn't wait to get on there, but I was nervous at the same time and I just loved it. You hadn't turned 17 yet? I was 16, yeah. yeah. So uh, there was a massive transformation from that kid nearly getting released at 14 to now the second youngest player in the club's history to be making his debut at 16. I made the winning goal. There's moments that live with you your whole life, and that's one of them. Even though you're, you know, you're a local lad, that Charlton fans don't necessarily associate you with Charlton, maybe because you left so young. Why is there that kind of disassociation between you guys? Time, time. People forget. People who used to watch me play for Charlton, they don't go anymore. They're too old. They're whatever. New generation comes through under... Alan Kerbishley, which was fit, he put a good team together, the best Charlton side and the best run in the top flight that Charlton have probably ever had. And, uh, you know, I'm coming back with other teams to play against them. So I'm, you're almost viewed as the enemy, which is how football is. You just can't get it. But, you know, I know how I felt about my time at Charlton and all the varying people from the groundsman, Morris, to Charlie Hall, the physio, Bill Gallagher, the physio, Les Gore, Jim Fibbins, who, who invited me to the club, Roy Passy, Alan Seeley, Ian Salter, all the various coaches that you know I had through my time there. And, and I've reconnected with Ian Salter. He lives in Denmark, and we've had a few chats lately um, on FaceTime. You know, that, 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 that was an amazing time for me. You know, when you dream of being a professional footballer, and suddenly you're on the cusp of that happening, I just can't tell you how exciting that is. The manager... Andy Nelson, Nelson. he sacked six months into your first season with the first team. Mike Bailey comes in. It seems that Charlton are then just braced for relegation. But that allows Mike Bailey to give you a long run of games towards the end of that season. How much does that do for your career? He wanted me to get some experience. It wasn't great in terms of, you know, the place was flat. Relegation was looming, if not almost confirmed. And I played, I think, the last nine games. But it was a struggle. I was excited just to be playing. 
but it wasn't easy to play in because the team wasn't playing with any confidence. It was all over the place. And then, so it was a good chance to get me to get a few games experience under my belt and then off we go the next season. We went away pre-season. I could see I was in the plans. I could see I was going to be playing up front with Derek Howells. And uh, it was all very exciting, as I say. What was that partnership like? Yeah, Derek was a swashbuckling hard man, you know, left foot, goal scorer, throw his elbows about a bit. I think he, he took it upon himself to think he had to look after me, but I'd already learned how to look after myself. When I say look after myself, I don't mean in terms of elbowing people, but part of the skill when you're coming through as a young footballer is to learn to expect it, to ride it, to cope with it, you know. And so I already had some of them skills because I'd already been playing reserve football at 15 where you're playing against disgruntled senior professionals. And that's great experience, learning at that level, at that age. That uh, doesn't happen now, does it? No, and that's, I, I, don't, I don't get that because what you have in modern day football is inexperience playing against inexperience. Whereas like, it was called the midweek league, I think it was called. And it was right. like, you know, it, it, was, it was pretty naff, a lot of it. You know, we'd be playing Peterborough. I wasn't in the top flight of reserve football like Arsenal in the combination league. This was like, you know, rag-ass rovers. You know, we were playing like Peterborough and Brentford and Wimbledon, and, you know, and teams like that. But I, I tell you, I wouldn't change it for anything. And no matter the standard of the player, I'm still playing against disgruntled older professionals. And I learned loads from playing against them. You know, I was ready. And then you, once you, you play your first few games, the standard goes up again because the players are slightly better. They're more experienced and they're better. You have to learn. You know, it's all part of that, you know, well, learning, really. Yeah, by the time I left Charlton, I'd played 100 games. You guys, you go back up to the second division at the first attempt. There's a curious job swap. Uh, Mike Bailey moves to Brighton. Alan Mullery comes in. Uh, you've won by then the Young Player of the Year award for Charlton in 8081. You've got new signings, Don McAllister, Terry Naylor from Spurs, Leighton Phillips, I think, from Swansea. Yeah. You yourself, you're getting in among the goals again. There's a very strange moment in your book where you, I think you're in the car park towards the end of the season. Alan Mullery approaches you and tells you that you need to get away, which is very unusual given that you're their star player. Uh, yeah, well, he, he, he knew he was going to go. And I think his advice to me was get out of it if you can. I was ready at that point. I'd done my apprenticeship, my 100 games. I was ready to go to the next level. Actually, yesterday, I had a Twitter spat with Mark Hullier, right? And so what happened? He was, was let's just say here, I think he took over as chairman, didn't he? As you right. were about to leave. Yeah. And so I was ready to leave, but I, I had aspirations a little bit higher than Luton. You know, I felt I got coerced, pushed, if you like, to have to make the move to Luton because he's literally took the club over and suddenly, I wouldn't say he's hit the jackpot, but in terms of like a club with no money getting 400 grand, he has half hit the jackpot in them days. Don't sound like nothing today. So someone said on Twitter yesterday, oh yeah, I wasn't very happy when you, his words were when you buggered off. So I didn't bugger off. I felt I got coerced by Mark Hullier to, to have to accept my transfer to Luton. Actually, it was the best thing I ever did. So I was ready for it. And actually, it was a win-win all round looking back on it. Charlton got some decent money. I went to the next level, even though I had aspired to better than Luton. And Luton was the perfect club for me. I just didn't know it at the time because it gave me 100 games at the top level, playing in a football inside, playing every single week. And, and even though we struggled, it was a massive success. Steve White was the make-weight in the deal. There's a very curious thing where I think you, you're both 
in the same place to sign, aren't you? And he's in one room, you're in the other. And He didn't know he was being sold. So what David Pleat did, we got like a suite with a door to the bedroom, a door to the lounge. So I almost agree my contract. And then I have to go in the bedroom and he shuts the door. And Steve White comes in and he tells him that he's selling him to Cholton. And he wasn't best pleased, I don't think. He had to make him part of the deal to get me in. So uh, anyway, it happened. You get a frosty reception from your new strike partner, Brian Steen. Yeah, you know, when I turned up at the ground and um, I had to sit up in the secretary's office upstairs in the reception and Steeny came in and wasn't overly friendly. Now, I almost got a feeling, oh, is this bloke just, you know, me and Whitey scored loads of goals and suddenly we got this young whippersnapper coming in for free a few quid and maybe just didn't think that that was the right move for the club at that time. And I did sense an underlying little bit of uh, negativity towards me. Uh, but what Pleaty did on pre-season, he put me and Steeny in the same room and we shared and suddenly we struck up a good partnership. And, you know, he was a good player, Steeny. He was a very good player and we worked well together. The goals were flying in that season. It's almost like uh, when you're watching football now behind closed doors, there were some strange results for Luton. I mean, goals going in at both ends. Uh, you get a hat-trick against Knox County. I think yeah. the second goal gets goal of the season. But the first goal that you score there is a stunning header. People tend to think, because I'm five foot seven and a bit, I, I, you know, they don't think you're a good header of the ball. I loved that in it. I worked hard at headering. I had a good leap. I, I think if you look back on a, out of my 170 goals I scored, I reckon there's 40 headers in there. As a guesstimation, I scored a lot more headers than people think. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, a great ball from Ricky Hill off the right-hand side. Boom, and I was up. I was at the top of my leap and just managed to steer it into the, in, in at the far post. And that was me off and running. And then the second one was, you know, it was just a magical day. My mum and dad were there, kicked the match ball and, you know, the place was buzzing, you know. So was I. You beat Brighton 5-0. There's an extraordinary uh, 4-4 draw at Stoke. There's a 4-1 defeat at uh, Aston Villa, then European champions. There's a 3-3 draw at Liverpool where you announce yourself to Anfield by giving Mark Lawrenson, who's then one of the top defenders in Europe. You cannot overstate how good that guy was at that time. You give him a real chase in and it seems at that point that the club had marked your card as one to watch. Yeah, I think so. And um, I think also there was another game where I think we lost six at Anfield and I played really well. Sounds stupid, but I played really well. And um, as I was coming off the pitch, Ian Rush said to me, he said, I might have got five. He said, but you was the best player. (laughs) I had a chuckle. It was easy for him to be magnanimous towards me after he just scored five. But I mean, Rush was a top bloke. I loved him a bit. So I think the fact that when we was losing 6-0, I was still going and going and going. I think they quite liked that as well, you know. We had a we had a five niller at Stoke. Or I think it was a five, and I got a hat trick, and I believe Bob Paisley was there that day. You almost missed that game. You had a cold. Yeah, the, yeah I had a bad cold, and I was moaning and cussing and whatever. And so the uh, the lads bought a big dummy, a massive big dummy, <laughs> and uh, presented it to me before the game. And like we had a laugh. It went out, and I think we had a nip of whiskey before we went out as well. And I went out and scored a hat trick. And they get you know the lads are going, yeah, can I have some of that cold? We've skipped to that game at the end of 82-83, which if it happened now, uh, Man City, Luton, all to play for. They only need a point to stay up. You guys need to win. I mean, if that happened in the era of the Premier League, that would go down as one of the most important games there's ever been. You cannot overstate it. And you guys are minutes away from being relegated. Raddy Antic scores that goal. 
there's a fair amount of aggro, let's say, when you guys are, are making your way off the pitch, having stayed in the uh, the old first division. Yeah, I mean, it was hostile, yeah. The tension was unbelievable. I didn't have a good game. It, it sort of passed me by a little bit, the whole thing. And the only thing I remember was Nicky Reid, their centre-half, giving me dog's abuse about I'm going down. And uh, all of a sudden, Raddy, bless him, not with us anymore, knocks that one in from 20 yards on the volley. I think it was on the volley. Yeah, it ends up in the back of the net. Oh, I absolutely hammered him. But then when the final whistle completely runs on, you sort of you, you sort of want to go to your own players, but you can see all the fans piling on the pitch. One or two got a little bit of a slap, I think. And anyway, we end up in the tunnel and there's Brian Orton rowing with uh, Dennis Stewart, I think it was. It was all a bit surreal. We got on the coach eventually, you know, with crates of beer and champagne and we had to all get on the floor and shut the curtains on the coach and hope that we never got our windows bricked in and we had a police escort out the place. Then we stopped at Stafford, I can't remember the name of the hotel, and we all got on the the jolly a bit. You played in an FA Cup final when FA Cup final were huge events. You played in a European Cup final, which we'll go on to in a moment. I mean, surely that game compares... I probably would have still got a good move at that level somewhere, even after if Luton had got relegated. That wasn't in my head at that time. It was a massive game at that moment. I held a lot of resentment about the Hazel tragedy for, for a while, a long while, because uh, every year I used to watch the European Cup or the Champions League, whatever you want to call it, and it's played in a magnificent stadium. And the stadium in Belgium was a disgrace. It was an absolute disgrace. Never fit for a European final. Just because of geography and Europe, it was Belgium's turn to have a game. But it should have been on the basis that they had a decent stadium and the stadium was decrepit. And, and, and even more resentful about the fact that the Liverpool fans got blamed for it and Liverpool as a club got blamed for it, where it totally, for me, lies at the door of UEFA. You know, they, they just took no responsibility for staging the game in that place. And, and as a player, you might only get in a European final once in your life. You might, well, you probably, ne- most players never do. So, you know, it's a once-in-a-lifetime thing. For a lot of years, you know, I used to watch the European Cup final every year and it's in the new camp, it's in the Stade de France. A great stadium somewhere. Obviously, I'm over it now, but um, it had a big impact on my life that game because Joe Fagan resigns, Kenny becomes the manager and or player manager and I already have an injury from that game. Although I thought it, it was the beginning of the end. You were also being linked with United at the time before Mark Hughes had come through which might have been an easy move for you in hindsight. How was the move to Liverpool sold to you at the talks? Was there going to be a succession in place? You and Rush were the future. Well, Liverpool wouldn't come out and say that as such. You've got too much respect for Kenny Dalglish, but I was a player that they wanted. And I had to prove myself once I got there that I could take over. I wasn't phased about, I wasn't phased of anything, whether it ended up being taken over from Kenny. Kenny was, age was against him. You know, no, no one disputed that partnership was the best one they're ever going to have. That never bothered me. You know, they didn't have to sell it to me because at that time, Liverpool were a million miles in front of Man United. Big Ron, whether or not he actually made a move or didn't make a move, I don't know. I also had a couple of little opportunities in Italy, um, not at big clubs in Italy, promoted clubs in Italy, but I'm going to the European champions. It's a no-brainer. And so I, I remember going to meeting, David Pleat took me to... I can't remember the name of the hotel now, somewhere right in Bath Row. It might have been the Penta or somewhere like that. I can't remember the name of it. And I wasn't nervous. And then all of a sudden he, put, he pulled over in his car about a mile from Heathrow. So I'm just going to get a paper. Do you want to drive the rest of the way? He had a big three-litre Opal Senator. I thought, yeah, I'll have a go at his car. <laughs> he was trying to see how nervous I was, I think. 
Anyway, I wasn't nervous at all. I was when I walked in the hotel because I changed. You know, I was meeting Peter Rumpson, the chairman, a couple of other people. I think Joe Fagan was there. They'd made their intentions that they wanted me. And then it was just a case of that. They were just sounding out me in front of David Pleat that, you know, I was happy to go there. And that was about three months before it actually happened. So I knew I was going. Uh, it was just a case of seeing the season out and then going up and signing the contract. The strange thing is that you signed for Liverpool, you're 21 years old, and your England career by then, because of what you said earlier, you've chosen to go with Liverpool to Rome, where they're playing Roma in the 84 European Cup final. It's an opportunity to get to know your new teammates. You played for England at Wrexham in a 1-0 defeat. The yeah. decision you make then is what causes the problems with Bobby Robson and effectively calls time on your England career at 21 years of age as you move into Liverpool. That doesn't really yeah. happen. Yeah, we're talking about days where there was no technology and I phoned David Pleat and said, David, look, Liverpool want me to go to Rome. Do you think Bobby Robson would mind? And he said, oh, no, I'm not sure about that, Paul. He said, but I'll call him. And I, I, I didn't hear from him. So I thought no news was good news. And then I picked the paper up the next day and it was like Bobby Boots out Walsh. The immature part of me, it's easy now when you look back in hindsight, I should have just rang him up and said, look, I was feeling a bit torn. It wasn't just as easy to ring someone up. You know, there wasn't a mobile. You'd have had to phone the FA up and ask, could you speak to Bobby if he was there? Anyway, I didn't do that. My logic at the time, maybe a bit arrogantly, was that, you know, I'm playing for the Liverpool, get back in the England team. It didn't happen because the emergence of Peter Beardsley. Because Peter comes through and he's a similar type of player to me. You know, but in 86, I was still doing better than Peter, really. But, first of all, he was getting put under pressure in the press because I've got the cutting somewhere to, to put me in the squad and give me, give me another chance. And then I got injured and it, once I got injured, it was irrelevant. Based on what happened in 84, the media were clamouring for you in 86. If no one knew about your situation, you'd have thought Paul Walsh is going to Mexico 86. Did you, though, have a different view because you really knew what had gone on in 84? Whether or not Bobby would have ever made a move to try and you know, just resolve it, I'd like to think at the time I would have said to him, it was a mistake, I didn't know what to do, you know, it was a mistake. It goes without saying that I wanted to play for England. Uh, maybe my, my own ego and arrogance wouldn't let me get in touch with him and apologise. Uh, I wish I'd have done that. And give me another chance, boss. There was a funny incident when you joined up with Liverpool in 84 after the Rome final. I think there's a, an end-of-season uh, game in, I think it might be Swaziland, and the club have told you that every player is going to get a £1,000 spending money, and I think yeah. you're in the bar, and <laughs> Graham Souness, who's about to leave, comes up. You, you pick up the story. It's a, it's, it's a strange, well, a difficult one for the new boy to deal with, let's say. Yeah, well, I, I understood his thinking as well, <laughs> but um, Joe Fagan says you're getting a grand, and Graham Souness probably thinking, why is he getting a grand? He ain't done nothing. So anyway, he tries to give me 500 quid, and once I count in the envelope, I went over to him and tapped him on the shoulder. I went, Graham, I'm not being funny, but um, you know, I've been told to get in a grand. Anyway, he looked at me with sort of to say exactly what I just thought he might think. And uh, anyway, counted it out and gave it to me, almost chucked it at me. Yeah, he was obviously having that 500 for himself, I think, but, but I got it anyway, so... There's two instances in your book, and the soonest one is the first one of them, where Souness just literally disappears from the club during that time because he's gone to sign for Sampdoria. There's another instance, I think, you and Chris Waddle are at Wimbledon in 89. You're both being linked with Marseille. Chris Waddle takes a call or gets a call, and that's it. He, yeah. He's gone, and it kind of shows 
the nature of being a footballer, how quickly something can change, how quickly a player can just either be moved on or move on. Yeah, the Graham Souness one, we all went, some players went to Sun City, some went down to Durban, and we had two four-seater planes that took us down to Durban, and Graham was with us. And we were staying in a hotel called the Elangini, and um, right on the beachfront at, um, in Durban. And uh, after a couple of days uh, of just nights out and you know having a, having a beer up, he got a phone call, and uh, his, his Sampdoria deal was on. He caught a plane home, and I never ever that was it. Never seen him again. The Chris Waddle one was, you know, I was told that this was going to be the best contract I would have, and why, why I was being made part of the deal. But anyway, I would have been happy to have gone. And yeah, I was with Chris at Wimbledon. He got the phone call. He's obviously getting shed loads of money, which he deserved because he was a great player, Chris. I was so average at Tottenham, never played anywhere near my best. I, I would have been lucky to get a move to Marseille. But anyway, it, it fell out of bed. I don't know why. I was linked with Atletico Madrid as well, you know, before any English players had gone there. Your first Liverpool season, there's the Heisel game. There was also Everton, the rise of Everton, which I don't think anyone saw at that time. And so that situation on Merseyside in the mid-80s, two of the strongest teams in Europe. And it's, you know, one year, one team's winning the league title. The other year, it's you guys. 86-87, the year after uh, Liverpool win the double, another year of near misses for Liverpool. Ian Rush is going to Juventus. They sign Aldridge towards the running of that season. I think you play in the League Cup final, but things yeah. are starting to change for you there a bit. And given the side that Liverpool went on to build then, which was a very different Liverpool side to what we'd seen before, it was an aesthetically really pleasing Liverpool side, which is the kind of side that you were built for. And I think that season, 87-88, they bring out two substitutes for the first time. And I remember listening to the first game of that season, Arsenal-Liverpool at Highbury, and you're coming on as a sub. And just as a fan, I'm thinking, Paul Walsh as a sub. Now, in the days now of squad games, you know, no one would think twice about that, big players being a sub. But do you think that, in hindsight, that was the time for you to move, summer of 87? Yeah, I had a wasted year the last year at Liverpool. Yeah, it just depends what was on the horizon. You know, you don't you don't move until the club tells you you're moving. I had a football agent, bless him, Eric Hall, who died recently. Derby, Arthur Cox, I, I could have gone, didn't really fancy that. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, well, I'd, I'd had several, I was just following the team around, like and never playing, never even getting on the bench hardly. That was quite soul-destroying, if I'm honest. I played in the reserves and did it properly, but I, I, I focused on drinking and going out more than, you know, football, because I just knew I wasn't playing. Um, very rarely did I get a start. Funny enough, I didn't realise that I, I did make enough starts to get a championship winner's medal, but I never got one because I left in the March and, um, you know, I never got a medal. But I, I'm, I'm entitled to one, but I just never got one. The players that arrived, Barnes and Aldridge are flying from the beginning. Peter Beardsley, it takes him a while to get going. Uh, did you think during those few months that you were still there that maybe you should have got that opportunity? I believe under old management, I would have done. But when you just spent, I think it was 2.2 million, I think it was. It was I think it was 2.9, wasn't it? Was it? No, or 1.9. It was a, it was a lot yeah, of money. It was a lot of money then. Because the team still won the games even though Peter in the games for the first few months was dead average. I believe that under Joe Fagan, I would have got, you know, I would have stepped in and the possession of the shirt was nine-tenths of the law then. But I believe that Kenny wanted to back his own judgment and make himself right and persevere with Peter. And he could afford to do that because results were still going okay. Um, and then Peter found his feet and, you know, Peter was a great player. You know, and once Peter caught fire, the addition of John Barnes, Barnsley was fantastic. The first season, John was phenomenal. 
People forget um, that maybe just how good he was those first few years at yeah, Liverpool. Yeah, well, I don't because when anyone asks me about my best players I've ever played with, I mean I can't say one because it would be Rush, Dalgleish, Barnes, Gazza, and and Steve Nichols in there. Very underrated. Yeah, he was a great player. So you know, John was absolutely amazing. He wasn't doing that for England, but he was amazing for Liverpool. You know, spending free kicks in, playing one twos, beating people, scoring goals, laying goals on. Bending him in the top corner. He was phenomenal. So, you know, when you got him doing that, you can carry Peter maybe at the beginning not doing so well. The problem was off the back of all my injuries, I mean, another thing that would just never, ever happen in football was I came back after seven months off and I've got a picture on my phone of it. I go to watch the Screen Sports Super Cup at Goodison and someone was ill. I think it was Mark Lawrence. And anyway, Kenny says, I haven't hardly trained, right, for, for six, seven months. Kenny says, you want to be on the bench? I went, yeah, I couldn't wait. I was just starting to train and, you know, get, get going again. You know, I came on with um, five, ten minutes to go. We won it. I go up for a chance, come down and land on my hand. And it's killing me. And I come in after the game and I go to uh, Roy Evans. I went, Roy, my arm's killing me. F*** off yourself, bastard. He said, you've been out six months. I went, all right then. So I went home, couldn't sleep because I couldn't get comfortable. I broke my wrist. Anyway, try to go and train in the next day. But the mad thing about it was, he went, get yourself up the hospital. But I've got a manual car, right? And I've broke my left wrist. And I'm driving and changing gear with my right hand. You know, and I come back with plaster up to my shoulder, underneath my armpit. And the lads just start laughing. But anyway, I had that plaster cast off two weeks later. And I went straight in the first team. And I think we lost at Luton away. I scored a hat-trick against Norwich. I went through three games, having not played for seven months, on adrenaline and pure just glad to be back sort of feelings and emotions. And then I ran out of steam. I went 14 without a goal, something like that. There was only me and Rush. Kenny didn't really want to play. The fans, they didn't turn on you, but you get one or two turn on you. They haven't thought about what's happening to me in the background. Anyway, and then John turns up. Now, John was a scruffy-looking footballer but could score a goal. You wouldn't have thought him and Rush would have done well together, but they did. You know, and it needed another player, but probably maybe from Kenny's point of view, Kenny had already decided he didn't want me. So it wasn't he was creating competition. He was replacing me and then he was going to replace me again with Peter Beardsley. So by the time he's bought them, you know, the writing's on the wall. It was hard to take. I, I didn't handle it well. It came as a surprise to me the, the certain distance there was between you and Kenny Dalgleish, given that you were, as players, almost cut from the same cloth. It was a very difficult role you were taking on, replacing the number seven, you know, one of the best players this country has seen. You're taking that on at a young age. You've got the talent, but there seemed to be, uh, certainly when he became manager, I think yeah. you found that maybe made it more of a challenge for you to fill that shirt on a regular no, basis. Me, me and Kenny... We had toe-to-toe rows, violent rows. You know, I'm talking about right in each other's face where we're spitting and really, really want to attack each other. And I remember that happening in his office a few times. You know, I used to tell him to f*** off every now and again, aggressively. Um, and maybe that belligerent attitude on my part, he thought he, he used me to as much as he needs to use me. And, but in his back of his conscience, I was going. And, and that's how it unfolded. I remember once, uh, I think it was Oxford, um, I'd been out for God knows how long, came back. I was on the bench. I came on after, I think, 25 minutes into the first half. Ronnie Whelan had a gashed forehead. Came in at halftime. We were losing, I, can't, I think we was losing one nil. Sat down and Kenny, first thing he did, he pointed at me. He went, see you. He said, you're not even trying. 
the team weren't playing that well. I'm thinking, how much can't I try in 20 minutes? Just come on. And they were launched into him. It nearly caused a bit of a fight with Alan Anson because Alan tried to stand up and tell me to shut up. And once he told me to shut up, I was now turning towards him. So I told Kenny to F off. He went, there'll only be one person effing off and it'll be you. I went, well, get on with it then if that's how you feel. You ended up on the transfer list at that point. And it's, yeah, I that's think, right. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the point that actually triggers your best Liverpool run. Yeah, because he puts me back in the team as I get fit and I go on that run. But deep down, maybe he's thinking, well, I don't know. It couldn't have worked out any better for Kenny. I helped get us in a position where we were heading for success. And then he came in and played the cameo role <laughs> at the end. And, and maybe it was just meant to be. I don't know. I, well, it was meant to be. There's something there... I don't know if it's a South London thing. What's clear through your book almost from the start is that you never backed down from a row. You weren't afraid to stand up for yourself. And it's a, it's a pattern throughout your career where, where you just always fight in your corner. And maybe that was working when you were playing really well. But then when you start to have the problems at Spurs, yeah. that counted against you. Is that fair? Yeah, it is. Yeah, the back analysis, looking back from my life from now, that belligerent attitude was good when it was going well. It didn't serve me well when it weren't going well, you know, because I, I could fall out with myself in the mirror, let alone anybody else. And, and certainly in situations that I believe were unfair, of which a few of them happened uh, with Kenny, I couldn't accept it. My logic was, well, if he's going to get rid of me, he can get rid of me on my terms. It just made me feel better telling him where to go some days. In the spring of 88, you moved to Spurs. You're not being wise after the event. The way you've written it, you're saying you knew what was going on with you. You knew that you were drifting. You've moved back home to London, but you're actually missing the North. You've gone to a club where there are so many lively characters. You add to that, you live in a weird lifestyle in a hotel. Paul Gascoigne turns up. The two of you are effectively knocking around together for several seasons. And it seems like a lost period in your career from where you were. That, that last season at Liverpool, I became a bit of a drunk because I used to drink and console myself with nights out and drinking because I couldn't face not playing. I couldn't accept the situation. I got into a bad habit of doing that. And then I turn up and I'm single in a hotel in, in London and I carried that behaviour on. So I totally only had myself to blame for Tottenham. Looking back at it, I can't blame anyone. Um, actually, if I saw Terry Venables today, I would apologise to him. I spent a lot of time in my book when I wrote it. I was totally had a different perspective on it. I now have a totally different perspective, which was he gave me an opportunity. I'd got in some bad habits. I'd been an, an emotional baby. You know, I let him down. So all my fault. Nobody else's fault. Totally my fault. It's interesting. You had a year up front as a regular with Paul Stewart. You've got that partnership. And off the pitch, you get on. On the pitch, it doesn't quite work. It's almost the reverse of Brian Steen, which made me think... How important is it that strike partnerships gel on and off the pitch or it's just completely irrelevant? All, all yeah. that matters is what you do on the pitch. Because of what I just said to you about my own attitude at the time and the way I was living, I look back on it and me and Paul didn't play well together. Neither of us was natural goal scorers and so we needed to play with a goal scorer and that was going to be Gary Lineker. But because I'd made it easy for Terry Venables with the way that I performed and the way that I played, You've got a £2 million footballer in Paul Stewart. Again, a bit a la Kenny Dalgleish at Liverpool with Peter Beardsley. I think he wants to make Paul Stewart work because he's, he's spent a lot of money on him. And I understand that. That didn't suit me. I thought that was unfair. 
But then again, I thought everything was unfair when it didn't go my way at that time. I look at it totally differently now. You know, I got what I deserved at Tottenham. Did it take you writing the book to arrive at that conclusion? Or did you, did you already know that as a player? No, it took me to have to go into Alcoholics Anonymous five years ago. That's what changed my attitude. <laughs> my, my belligerent fight the world attitude had made me ill. Things were going wrong in my life all over the place. And so I had to change something. And that's what I had to change. And changing that, I've totally changed my outlook on everything. And, you know, I haven't had a drink for four and a half years. My life's a lot better. I've repaired a lot of relationships, saw my part in all of what's happened, rather than looking and pointing the finger at other people. I now accept responsibility in all of those situations. Hence why I'm telling you that Tottenham was totally my fault. I probably contributed to Liverpool to a large extent as well with my attitude, belligerent F-off attitude. I'm, I'm quite comfortable with all of it. But to be but, fair, that honesty is in the book as well, though. You are, which I think was written in 2015, that honesty was already in the book about your, your Spurs years, that, that sense that you drift in. And you're still so young at that period. Let's say the best Paul Walsh there was goes to Mexico 86, and you're still only 27, 28 when Italian 90 comes around. The best Paul Walsh turned up at Man City in, in 1994. And we're going to end on that bright note because it's interesting what happens at the end of your career. Very quickly before we leave the Spurs period, you finally play in an FA Cup final. Does Roger Milford say Paul Gascoigne's career if he sends him off for the first challenge against Gary Parker? Because you make a very good point that he was never the same player again. And he wasn't. No. Well, in hindsight, of course, it's easy, isn't it? It would have done him a favour. but It would have been the biggest... Headline of, of all time um, at that point, sending him off in, a, in an FA Cup final so early on. So I un- totally understood why he let it go. You know, the, the tackle on Gary Parker, where he studs him in the chest, is a scandal on its own. And he goes and makes a second reckless challenge. Luckily for Tottenham, if you like, he didn't get sent off making that challenge. At least we had 11 men on the pitch. But for Gazza himself, I think it ruined his life. I don't know whether Gazza's life would have been any different if that moment never happened. I don't know. But it was um, a beginning of a struggle for him to stay where he was, the best one of the best players in the world. And although I played in that cup final, I still would say to anybody, I deserve to play more in the 86 cup final than I did in the 91 one. But I got on the That's pitch, interesting. Yeah. Made, a, made a small contribution and I got a medal. But in terms of affection and how I look at it, I've got a few nice photographs. But I much more deserve to be in the, the Liverpool final than I did for the 91. You made an interesting point about Gascoigne on the day of the 91 final, that he wasn't quite himself that day, or he was even, personality-wise, he was even bigger than he normally was, that dangerously over-exuberant, too hyped up, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the moment was coming, and, and, and he was focusing, his way of focusing was getting agitated, getting wound up, doing something stupid. When we stayed in city centres, hotels, and we stayed in the rural Lancaster, I mean, you got Hyde Park right across the road, but there was occasions where he, he probably couldn't go out and, you know, he probably needed to let a little bit of steam off. Like sometimes he'd go and play snooker or he'd go and have a game of squash or do something, let a bit of steam off. Yeah, he was just too revved up and, you know, and thought he was indestructible. And he weren't. There was a lot of hype about him after Italia 90. I remember his, uh, his appearance on Wogan. He actually mentioned you in his interview with Wogan. So it was clear that you two there was a relationship off the pitch. And in your book, there's a, well, I'm not sure whether to say it's a funny incident. It's certainly an incident where I think you're, you're driving. 
he rolls his window down the ice cream tell us about the ice cream it's extraordinary uh to be fair he was a good lad guys when we've been over to jersey or guernsey i can't remember there's a bit in the book i don't know if i mentioned it about going in to see the disabled kids and and what he did initially we have to be so careful today in case you upset somebody but his behavior when we first walked in to meet a load of disabled kids was mortifying but he did it to get a reaction. Then he ran around and cuddled everyone and they all loved him to bits. But on the way home, so we land at Heathrow, we're driving back and we get to, there's a roundabout, Southgate roundabout, and there's a wimpy on the corner. So we had the wimpy. You know, I said to him, anything else you want? He went, I'll have a 99. And the fella, because it's him, whips him up the biggest 99 in the world. And we get in the car. Actually, the first bit was, he had it all around his face and wipes it all up. And we get in the car and it's, off we go. And about half a mile up the road, there was like that cyclist, drop, you know, helmet, you know, backpack, all in one gear, drop handle, but pro- proper racer, you know, even back then. Now, as I indicated to go past him, the window went down on the left-hand side, which caught my eye. And he's flicked the ice cream. He sort of, it's great timing because it sort of went out and came back into him and it him right in the right eye socket. And ah, oh, we was crying like a couple of school kids. When I, look, when I went past him, he was looking in the mirror, he had this big dollop of ice cream cascading down his face and we're crying like a couple of kids and then we stop at the lights and uh, we're still crying but the bloke's getting nearer and nearer lights haven't changed and eventually they do change but we haven't moved and the, just as we're about to move the fella got off kicked hell out of my door we pulled away and once we pulled away he turned around and started sticking two fingers up at him but you know it's just what it just what it was like you know just another day in the life of there have been some highs that we've covered in the middle part of your career, but some lows. So I think it's important we end very quickly on what you did to turn your career around, to get back to where you should have been form-wise. Out of the blue, you decide to drop down a division. You go to Portsmouth. You're not keen to be there. It's a bit of a shock to the system. Do you think because it's a shock to the system, it brings you back closer to the player you were meant to be, the player that you were? Well, not really. I mean, I'd got married. I'd slowed up a little bit. I, I wanted to regain my own self-respect, if you like, as a football player. And I didn't want to go to Portsmouth, if I was honest. I, I don't know if I bang on about the interest rate in my book, about it being 16%. And, yeah, the, and the every penny of my, of my wages went in a mortgage payment. People just wouldn't believe that today if they was reading it. And Portsmouth bought my house off me. And that got me out of that mortgage. It allowed me to, to make the move, but I didn't want to go. But, but that was the thing that made me go getting out of that mortgage. That's how bad it was at the time. I went down at Portsmouth. I remember going with Ian Walker, who was going out with my sister-in-law at the time, went to St. Lucia on a holiday. And um, all that I did was train and play tennis and run and train. I thought, I can't go to Portsmouth. I'm fit. You know, the facilities weren't the best. I liked Jim Smith. The lads were great. Um, facilities were pretty crap. I didn't enjoy that part of it. I didn't have a great start. I was ill at the beginning and then suddenly managed to turn it around and we had a great season, ne- nearly got promoted, didn't quite work out, missed the playoffs because I got sent off. Great partnership you know, with Guy Whittenham. Yeah, Guy, Guy got something like, four, I'm not sure if it was 49 or 47 goals, it was phenomenal, but it was one of them partnerships that worked. You know, we had Mark Chamberlain on the right side, quality player, Alan McLaughlin breaking from midfield, quality player, Guy stand at the top end, me dropping in, a lot of interchanging of those other three moving around, all designed to supply a, a chance for Guy and you give him a chance he didn't miss and he had a phenomenal season yeah we just missed out and then Guy went I was a bit depressed when Guy went to Aston Villa because I still wanted to do well the fact that you could try and win a promotion was might had to be a moment I had to be trying to get somewhere I couldn't just plod 
and selling in. I just thought I'm now in plod, plod land where we just, what are we doing? Because we're never getting up. And then he signed Jerry Craney, who, who was dead average uh, in everything. And, and anyway, we go to Old Trafford and I score a cup in the League Cup against Man United. And Brian Alton, my old Luton Town skipper, now manager of Man City, is at the game watching it and decides to make a move. And, and that was an excruciating three weeks trying to wait for it because he phoned me up and said, would you come? I went, yeah. You know, and I had to sit there every day going into training thinking, when's it happening? When's it happening? When's it happening? You know, and it just starts. It was like an eternity. You're in purgatory because there's a lot of implications. You know, you've got a young son, you're going to move, you've got to change house, I'm building my own house. It was all these things going on. And you're forward thinking them without knowing if it's actually going to happen. Anyway, it did eventually happen and uh, got thrown together with Uwe Rossler. Which is an um, incredible I'm, partnership, isn't it? And you, 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 your goal yeah. saved City from relegation that season. You know, the first couple of games were horrendous. I think it was Wimbledon and Sheffield United and we lost one and drew one. And then we signed Peter Beagree and Brian Orton was trying to put his team together. And then in the fourth game in, we, we'd just been over on uh, Oldham, like, like a derby game virtually, and, and a draw on a terrible pitch. And it was quite depressing for the first couple of weeks, depressing. I felt the pressure because I think that Man City fans felt that I was too old and had dropped down a division and what we buying in for. And I felt a bit of that. Uwe had a clean bill of health because no one knew him. The fourth game, we're away at Ipswich and we get another draw, but we should have won. But me and Uwe, I score my first goal and I make Uwe his first goal. And we're off and suddenly we bang, 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 scored goals, won matches and we went from bottom three up, up the table. And suddenly the City fans loved us. It changed their attitude towards me anyway. suddenly became the most exciting time in my life again. The two managers that you had right at the end of your career, Jim Smith, I thought, was brilliant for you. You had managers that believed in you. You had Brian Halton, your old Luton skipper. Yeah, great. Brian Halton always seemed to be under a lot of pressure at City, almost having to justify being there, if I remember rightly. Because City City have always been a big club, long before the money. Franny Lee had taken over as chairman and Franny Lee didn't want him as manager. And so was just biding his time. But I remember we beat Blackburn 3-2 at Ewood Park and the, the season they won the title. I think he was going to sack Brian that night. And then we come here and we beat them on their own ground, 3-2. And I got the winner. So it was a great night. But when I saw his face when he came in the dressing room, almost, almost looked disappointed that we'd won. He already had Bawley lined up in the background. He so was a bit of a... Bit of a hero of yours, Alan Ball, but he yep. seemed to make a mistake that completely unbalanced the team, bringing in King Cladsey yep. and trying to build the team around him in the way he had with Letitia at Southampton. But it, I mean, they paid a heavy price for that, perhaps. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, listen, just to quantify it, I mean, I, I grew up, I was an Arsenal fan. I watched Alan Ball play for Arsenal in the mid 70s. I played against him as player manager of Blackpool at, at Charlton when I was 17 and scored the winning goal. He was very complimentary towards me. I loved him to bits. He was a World Cup winner. And all them years later, he bigged me up on the TV and in the newspapers. All them years later, he comes as manager of Man City, does a rousing first day speech. I loved it. I loved it. I loved his speech. Then over time, over the pre-season, he became more and more demotivating. Georgie come into the mix and he could only see Georgie. And he's moved all the other parts of the jigsaw around to accommodate Georgie. Georgie wasn't a forward. Georgie wasn't particularly a midfielder. Georgie didn't chase anyone. Georgie didn't tackle anyone. Georgie didn't head the ball. And Georgie looked silky gorgeous when he was on it. But only scored four goals. He just weren't worth moving the whole team around for. Maybe in a modern day system, because everyone played 4-4-2 pretty much then. In a modern day system, 
maybe you could play a 4-2-3-1 with Georgie in the middle of the three and you might have got away with him. Probably would have done. But in a system that Alan Ball was playing, old school 4-4-2, it had no chance. By the time you leave City, there's a there's a passage in your book. It's just out of the blue. I think you're at Arsenal. I think you're, you're going up for a challenge. And I think you write that at that moment, something happens to your body and it's the first yeah. sign that your body's about to give up on you. And it illustrates the fragility of being a professional footballer in his 30s, early 30s, mid 30s, whatever. It's, you know, your body's letting you know. Yeah. It was against Arsenal uh, at, at um, Main Road. And uh, I was having a great game. But there was a ball to the back post where all I've got to do is jump and edit and nothing happened. I went to jump and nothing happened. I just, just nothing happened. And I went, wow, what was that? I, I would have scored. You know, I had a great game as well, generally, in really difficult conditions. Yeah, I went, wow. It didn't happen to me much. And the other thing was I played out of a possible 55 games. I think while I was there, I think I played 53. Yeah. I didn't miss a game. Brian Alton played me in every game, even sometimes out on the left side. He wanted me in his team, you know, and, and, and I love that. I love that he wanted me in his team. If I'm brutally honest, things that you learn from, you hear today about Klopp and people moaning about games and all the rest of it. He played 42 games on mud, mud sodden, every pitch main road was. You know, I played every game. I hardly missed anything. And the only reason I missed the game was we went and played some daft testimonial and I got tackled by the local DJ and rolled <laughs> my ankle over and missed, and missed two games. Other than that, I wouldn't have missed them. You've effectively played two, two and a half seasons in the space of 18 months in terms of the games you played. Yeah, you know, a lot, lot of games, cup games, not really had loads of cup games. You're playing 45, 50 games maybe a season, two, two league cup games, an FA Cup, a minimum of three FA uh, Cup games, even if you get knocked out in the first legs because you yeah. played a two-legger league cup and then the one FA Cup. And I know that we won one of the FA Cups because I scored the winner against Villa. Yeah, I'm just saying to you that there was no rest. Pitches were heavy, there was no rest. I could have done with a breather and a recovery, like I all have now. Yeah. But like, that makes that Liverpool stuff even more amazing. I have seven months off, don't play. I, I played a, a friendly game at Ewood Park and then go in the first team after seven months off. Not played any, any reserve football. It just never happened. Yeah. Lastly, how important was it? Well, I suppose it was important. I mean, you really recovered your career in such a strong fashion the last three, four seasons. You go back to Portsmouth. You, I think it's an injury that brings your time there to, to an end around 96. Yeah. Um, but those last three, four years, I mean, you've got back to, you know, the kind of footballer that you were. You turned it around from a dark place. How important was it for you to end on that high note? And, and you know, you're 20 years on, 25 years on, Portsmouth and City fans still talk about you and your contribution to those clubs. I knew I had to get out of City because I could see where it was going. And Terry Fennick phoned me up and he asked me about two City players. And I gave him my recommendation, Fitzroy Simpson, Carl Griffiths. Take Fitz, Griffith, do your head in, but he scores a goal. And while he was on the phone, I said, don't you want me back? He went, would you come back? I went, yeah, three years, same money, done. He went, leave it with me. And uh, that was the beginning of it. So then that ends up with a, a swap deal with Jerry Creaney, which got me back to, to Portsmouth for another three years. So good business on my part a little bit. I've now got a contract till I'm 36. And I was still loving me football. I knew I'd be accepted back at Fratton Park with open arms, which I was. But it only lasted six months. And I had a, a micro fracture in my tibula at the top. The surgeon said, leave it three weeks. 10, 12 days into that three weeks, the club said, can you play Saturday? I went over the park and had a fitness test over the park. And I'm running around and it hurts. And I went, I'll give it a go. Running across the pitch, my knee collapses. And that's it. 
end of. I think you hear from fans who write to you to tell you that they heard a pop. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I did that. I did. So they, yeah, some of them might have done. I knew it was serious. I didn't know 100% it was the end. Then it got really messy, which we don't want to go into, I suppose, but it got really messy after that. Paul's book, Walshy, My Autobiography, Wouldn't It Be Good, remains available in all good bookstores, assuming they've survived the pandemic and, of course, in all the usual online places. Do please rate, review and subscribe to the show on whichever platform you download it from and share and retweet, repost, etc. social media links. The show can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page, please do. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80s synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. Join me for episode two, a Christmas special out on Christmas Eve. This has been the opening installment of When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, We don't talk about it. Mm